Hello everyone, welcome to Green Knight episode 9. This is the final episode. I'll probably change it. Yeah, I'm probably going to change it. Transform it. The previous episode was on the seven principles. This is the location, is the deep missing component that I spoke of in the beginning. I called it a dysfunction, but really it can be described simply as a missing of the mark. I focus on this because of my intention to link this to a solution for the material problem we face as, as the inhabitants of Earth. When I say material, I mean I come at it from the perspective of human factors. In the most basic sense, human factors derive from the fact that we have bodies, that we need to eat, we need to drink water, and various other things. This is the material problem. We are alive and require certain elements in order to be so. The importance of our technology is paramount in these considerations. If it was to go away, many of our essentials would be hard to come by. However, it is also our tech that got us into this precarious state, the general state of civilization. We are definitely vulnerable as a collective at this time. We could say that it has been mismanaged. The use of technology has been mismanaged, and it has, but that mismanagement is a symptom of the deeper dysfunction. I'm saying that the mismanagement of technology is umbrella over the mismanagement everywhere. <laughs> if we can address that deep miswiring, then our collective ventures need not be corrupted. This is why comprehension of what the seven principles are saying is important. And I say important, but that doesn't do it justice. There need not be confusion on this. There is so much talk and writing about the lesson in these principles, but it isn't complex. The complexity arises in the dance, the waltz of polarity, but the principles are not complex. Because of what is contained in the words, there is a bridge that can be traversed, a bridge that leads to a way to be that is in harmony with the surroundings. In the past, there was a moment that we lost our way, so we started the chain reaction of technological remedy for our blindness. This process at once led us away from nature, even in opposition to it, but also this process conspired to bring us back. Technology is the mistake, but it's done now, and we can fix it, I think. When we think of ourselves, as creatures of nature, the glaring feature is our ability to apply knowledge gained through abstraction of thought. This is, of course, the feature that allows us to consider the idea of self or to be self-aware. There are other species, it could be argued, that have that ability, but they lack technology, such as dolphins. It is likely, I mean, it's it's proven that they convey ideas through images and they have names 
but this is an example of an evolution to sentience without the introduction of artificery. It could be that this type of evolution will produce bodies that can be self-aware, but if left to develop a-causally, would technology as we know it be present in that development? What is the ultimate expression of the universe besides itself, that is? Could it be that a progression that is free of influence from an external intellect, meaning left to develop naturally as a species would, would eventually, wouldn't this species eventually embody be the technology as opposed to creating it externally? We equate species advancement with technology, perhaps, but perhaps a deeper intelligence is available along a different line of evolution. Maybe we are an anomaly, a rare case of a race that has forgotten who we are and so turned to technology external to ourselves. This is what happened to us, I guess, maybe, right? This is the event that created a cascading chain of cause and effect. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. The fifth principle. This event created a wave in the cosmic background. And thinking of everything of, as waves, including everything that occurs in the human sphere of relationship and society. Nothing is done that does not create waves. This collective commitment to the production of technology had an impact, resulting in a peak wave larger than well, most. But this also instantly creates a trough, completing the law of polarity and the law of rhythm. Each wave has a trough, an equal and opposite reaction. You can't have a wave without a trough and a peak. And waves pass by. Right? The law of rhythm. This then begins the self-iterating process of technological development. <clears throat> Collective commitment to the, to the production of technology begins a cascade self-iterating process of technological development and for each new wave of radical innovation releasing also a trough superior and inferior and the rhythm between the two Separation with nature does not exempt a technological civilization from being subject to the natural law. It merely delays it. It creates a longer wave of cause and effect. A technological civilization takes over in the decision-making in the form that the environment takes. A technological civilization takes over the decision-making in the form that the environment takes. This is the moment we stepped off the path previously mentioned. It is likely we had no choice but to do it. And I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying maybe <clears throat> it's why we are here right now. 
this is the moment we stepped off the path. It is likely that we had no choice but to step out the outside the chain of the unfolding of the universe. And yet, still subject to its laws. Technology essentially creates an organism that is composed of human beings. Because we all have to, because of separation of labor. Right? We all have to do different things in order to achieve one goal. And this is caused or it's like a polar wave inside the mind of the minds of men. <laughs> right? That drives itself. Creates an organism that is composed of human beings. Right? Then now the entire group becomes subject to the rhythm of nature. So it's a longer wave. It's a bigger wave. We see this in the rise and fall of empires in the past. In addition, technology creates a space in which we exist and is also artificial. Therefore, in this space, the form and the relationships of form inside that space are entirely subject to the sensibilities of the members of society, in which the prime motivation is value. Value has its roots in the principles of cause and effect, in our relationship with nature as a separate entity, and yet still within it. The motivation instilled by these conditions, separate yet inside, is to continue to innovate if we are to survive. The separation is what drives the innovation. With each rise, each wave of technological innovation, there is a fall, and we perpetuate this cycle in an ever-tightening circle while being blind to the notion that it's a pattern we create. This pattern looks like a wheel in which we revolve ever tighter and faster, but really never go anywhere. We are, we are approaching something, but we're not moving except to arrive at this pivotal moment, right? When we can finally gain traction, maybe, right? Because what has changed is technology. Where it goes, we also follow with our minds. Technology, technology insinuates separateness. I mean, it's based on the observation of materials, right? that are found by looking around. It insinuates the separateness of things. But the, the universe insists on rhythm. The perception of value is an attractor and is what drives the continued development of technology. It is what reinforces our, conviction, our convictions that we are separate from nature. The relative benefits are always for us, a comparison to a before and after, or with this or without, a differentiation by relative comparison of everything. Our perception of value is a differentiation of the environment and the cognition of it. 
of value attracts people and drives technological development. Right? We can see what's good and it attracts. It's like a well and around that value well organization takes place. But there are laws in operation still within the noise of society. The flows, the vortices, that and eddies within society change in response to its own output. It reiterates, right? Its technology and thus its members' minds are transformed together. A value as value and the perception of value drive the evolution of technology. There is still the echo of nature urging us back to the path. Nature sends a constant message. Each wave created has a trough. The larger the wave, the deeper the trough. The output of society becomes the new input in a self-iterating pattern. So although technology is a departure from nature, it has this correlation with it, self-iteration. This is the march of the advancement of technology and civilization. It's a spiral dance. The interaction of us with our technology as it progresses. We tend to remain unchanged in a general sense, but as an aggregate, the perception of value that we have in the majority remains the same. It is this sameness that drives the emanation of the form of society because look, our perception of value remains the same. And new is valuable, right? Our whole capitalism is based on waste so that we can replace the previous product, right? And drive sales. This sameness drives the emanation of the form of society. If we were to change with technology, meaning if we actually got the message it was sending, we would not be compelled to repeat the iteration over and over. And again, to remedy the problems in the new order of technological organization. Every radical innovation changes the scope and the scale of our interactions with each other. Right? Which creates a whole new set of problems. And with our old way of thinking, we try to approach them. And so we get caught with our pants down. This is right the, what McLuhan was talking about. And we're about to get our pants yanked down <laughs> from the radical innovation of the internet if we can't fucking, you know, figure this out.
we wouldn't repeat the iteration over and over again to solve new problems that we created. We would get the message. The message of technology is that of scale. It's of scale. Right? We created the exchange when we started making technology because it's a collective effort. And so then there has to be exchange in order to keep everyone going doing the collective. And that's it's basic. It's really basic. The message of technology is that of scale. Right? We make it bigger. Each iteration increases the scale at which we exist. Our technology will continue to advance at an exponential, at an exponential rate, but we cannot. It's as if we're in dance. We only get out of if we die. And this is not an environmental argument. There is a scale permitted by our technology. Right? At which if we can't um, adjust, then we can't get beyond that scale. And it's not because uh, it's not a uh, capacity argument. It's not an environmental, it's not a population argument. We can't do it this way and continue but we need our technology to continue there's a scale permitted by our technology at which the critical option is one the critical saving option you know pulling out the save at the last minute is the one that has never been chosen <laughs> But if we fail to choose this option, right, it's not, we can't, we can't fail. Because the alternative is too sucky. It is this concept that the sea wolf speaks of in the novel of the same name. And he wrote this way back when, you know, like in the fucking 20s or something. Are we not more than yeast, says the seawolf in one of his soliloquies. You gotta read it. Are we not more than yeast? It is at this particular iteration of our civilization that with our current perception of value in place, we won't survive or we will be placed in arrested development for some shit. Not till we learn, but like trapped in that, the way we are now forever. <laughs> like, hello, aren't we supposed to advance? You know, like evolve, not revolve. It is the, it's not an environmental argument. It's a spiritual argument. Like we have reached our spiritual limit on this. We can't go around again. It sounds like maybe I'm doing an anti-technology argument. It's not. That is not to say that technology is not the problem. It is. 
the departure from nature is what the technological side society does. Okay. But this way of being in the universe plays out in accordance with the laws of nature regardless. This is what we're experiencing. Right? It's the technological gambit. It's risky. <laughs> but we can, I think we can transcend. That's why I'm saying this. You know, the technological gambit. People want to say we're special in this way, in this technological endeavor. But also, they claim that technology is how you identify an advanced race. You know? Like we're supposed to know or not know. And so we presume that other races are, are like us. With this analysis, it seems to me likely that our conditions are exceedingly rare, only in that we have a chance to actually navigate the critical event that every technological experiment faces. The elements at play at the moment here on Earth are common, I think, in the universe. Seems to me. I'm down with this whole creation being the universe and not just a bowl, okay? The elements at play here are probably common, but survival of their combination is rare. This is a critical point in the evolution of a technological species such as ourselves, at which the technology is advanced enough to present a crux in the timeline. What I'm referring to is not one any particular type of technology, just that it has reached the level at which we, we begin to understand from a technical perspective at long last what we are and what everything is our catalog of knowledge begins to tell the story. But that overt information, that hard disk of data, while tells the story, finally, technology itself has been broadcasting the message since day one. And it's ironic, I know. But the message is that if we extend our bodies through our own knowledge, we include everyone in that extension. It's not some game where some people are more valuable than others. This is not some declaration of morality. It simply is when technology is introduced, it creates a common bond between individuals due to the fact that an exchange must and has been established. Because there's no common effort without common shared output. The exchange is there. It's been there forever. Common effort demands an exchange, an energy, but most importantly, information. The message is that we are together operating as a unit. Technology is but information in disguise. 
and we have compiled enough information to be aware <clears throat> that we are part of a whole being. The way we determine value by comparing the relative difference of things includes impetus to build hierarchy, the reinforcement of the relative difference between people right, in society, our structure, our class system, caste system. Right, it doesn't work. This activity creates polarization within society and activates the principle of rhythm. I mean, it's, easy, it's as easy as that. <laughs> right? They've been developing government systems in order to keep this, you know, keep controlled. It's just a symptom of our gestation. Though. And I know it sucks, but there's a way out of this. This is how our technology relates to our spiritual evolution. Who would have thought it, right? Not the fucking hippies, right? And the new hippies, I don't even know what they are. I'm a hippie, so I can call you a fucking hippie. Technology and the spiritual evolution. So, the way of seeing the world that got us here created our technology, and our technology got us to this moment where it's do or die. And, you know, I don't want to be right, but I want to get it right. You know, I would like for us to get it right. I mean, I am nothing, right? <laughs> but this might be important, and just in case. Yeah, let's try to figure out a way. This moment that either culminates in destruction or transcendence. Why not, you know, transcend? But I'm not talking about transcends, transcendence into a being of light, <laughs> but just into intelligent beings, able to reason logically and sanely. I mean, this is what technology has fostered, you know, underneath the umbrella of management, right, is reason. We require it. But also, we must reason without prejudice and without an, old, an adherence to the old way of thinking. So we can't deal with what's being presented to us with the old way of thinking. This is the ultimate version of that. 
right? Because if we try to do it with the old way, we destroy ourselves or we get put in a digital cage and chips put into our brains. It freezes in this state forever. And aren't we supposed to fucking get better? We are the transition crew. We are the transition crew. We will put into place a technological system because we need it. Can't do it without it because of the exchange I spoke about. We're all doing separate jobs. We're specialists. So we'd have to be specialists to fix this. <laughs> and it'll turn out that our specialization, we can turn over to the robots. <laughs> that may sound crazy because of all the fucking mind fucking they do on you. But imagine if we used AI for the proper purposes. You know, we're the transition crew to put in a technological system that is in harmony. And we need AI to do it. And I'm not talking about what I've already mentioned is this bullshit that just spies on you. You know, pretends like it's your friend and shit. <laughs> right? What if we had a personal AI that didn't call home every fucking second? <laughs> tattle on you right that was out there working for you you know getting shit done for you doesn't that make sense we can choose to be in phase with nature by knowing ourselves right and becoming whole as individuals and then we can take the right steps we can see the way that's better a way that's good but we can't do it unless we become whole that's the only way we can participate in the exchange and continue our path right with technology there's a bridge that can be taken by each of us and it's a shortcut and we all know there are no shortcuts <laughs> But this bridge now happens to be the only way to get to where we are going. We don't have time to go around, you know, and we never really did. We've been going around and around and around for a long time. Now's the time. The wheel is caused by choosing to be in opposition with nature. When you think about it, we're in a war with nature. Right? You can't deny it. Like technology is kind of that way. And we're in it now. And we're at the end. <laughs> if we can navigate the gestation process. As a species, for whatever reason, we seem to have found ourselves in this particular process and it's painful we were at some point 
in the past in a dire situation. And I guess decided to take things into our own hands. And it's burned into our psyches at this point, I think, that idea. You know, it's like why that seems completely natural <laughs> for that to happen. And who knows how we got in that position. If at some point we were had more connections, right? Our bodies and we could operate at full potential. And so we just had to, you know, go mundane, so to speak, in order to survive. And that creates this thing that happens that we're experiencing, that we're right at the end of. Right? This is how I see it. It's a, it's like it's almost like once it's a catalyst that starts it and then it just goes bam until it's fruition, which is either self-destruction or transformation. And that doesn't mean you change your bodies and become fucking cyborgs, okay? <laughs> That's not the dance we're doing with technology. So we had to take it into our own hands and we started a war on nature. But like nature loves that shit. That's how it works. Right? That's how new things are brought into being. Just ask the asteroid belt. This opposition creates an itch that must be scratched. Right? It's like, oh, okay. An itch that is, for us, a furious data collection. But for what are we collecting all this information? Why are we doing it? But having begun this departure from nature, we had no choice but to catalog. It is automatic. What quality drives this machine? It's the mind. The ability to perceive value. Right? It begins with the fight to survive. Technology is a valuable ally in that struggle. And so it's value, value despite serving an individual end, you know, because each individual wants to survive. It also motivated group cooperation because single-use technology is no use at all. Technology at once, driven by competition, you know, the idea of the struggle to survive in a hostile ecosystem and preserved for the future through cooperation. And then again, being improved by individual action, right? The individual mind. <clears throat> Abstract thought is the birthplace of innovation. This self-authoring dynamo process is like electricity and magnetism, each dragging the other forward, a grind of group versus individual concerns. 
There is no group without its members. Members without a group have nothing to exchange. This experiment of the universe called humanity is just another dance of polarities. But this dance is, you know, I want to think about it like it's our time in the womb. These patterns are built upon themselves until a body is formed. Right? We divide and we divide and we divide. Cell divide. Until we become one body. And are ready to be born. <laughs> you know, we have all of the organs. And everything's in place. We're just dumber than fuck. Because we think coming together is like communism or something. And now they're tricking us into doing this fucking communism light shit. And fuck that too. You know, what this is, is the exchange that was created when we decided to go technology. <laughs> Stop fucking beating around the bush. This dance is our time in the womb. We're building a body. So we gotta learn to see it, right? In that way. So we can operate it in balance with nature. So We'll, we're ready, right? This is the time. Um, but will we eat each other first in the womb? You know, like sharks or some shit. I know that's a mixed metaphor. Or will we permit a parasite to cause us to be stillborn? That's a fucking neural link. You guys, we can't have that one either. So stop fanstering fucking Elon Musk. He's a, I mean, fuck, man. I could spend money so much better than him. <laughs> the human species itself is preparing to be born. However, we cannot be as we were born if we merge with technology. This is not the birth we seek. There is a conspiracy to bring about this trans transhumanism. Because their rationale is that we'll survive. But only as slaves. And we'll survive because we will just stall before the critical moment when we have to make the adjustment, right? So we'll just stay there forever. That's the stillborn option. They make a lot of effort to slow our progress right now, enough to put the cage in place before we wake up and stop falling for it. I know if you're listening to this, you haven't, but maybe your friend or family. 
The proper course lies in each of us. It's in each of us. This is the crux. It's not outside. It's an inside thing. The evolution must be an inside job. Consider this for a moment. Look at what we do from a distance. Try to see that in your mind's eye for a moment. It's a mad rush, <laughs> right? Isn't it? That seems to be on autopilot. And all the milestones, all the identifiable stages are foregone conclusions to arrive at this last stage before failure or birth. What if there's a critical step we can take to become one of the rare, rare, rare technological species that graduates to the next phase? Wouldn't you want to take that step? When you understand the seven principles, <clears throat> you can hear something like this and be like, who do you think you are? You won't say that because you'll be like, wow, yeah, the fucking content is spot on. <laughs> what if the universe is as large as it seems? A technological system of survival separates itself from the rest of nature by choosing for itself. And so it's not subject entirely to the a causal influences of the world and the universe. I mean, in like a, I mean, this is what I'm talking about, right? It's a separation of path that would otherwise occur naturally, right? Even though we're still natural beings in the natural universe. This, in effect, creates an ecosystem that is information-based, right? So when we start choosing for ourselves, that's the furious data collection. It's information-based, right? Because we're constantly trying to get more information on how to choose better. The technological species will furiously collect data driven by the attraction of apparent value and real value. But when I say apparent value, I mean it can be manufactured. And you have to be careful. <laughs> Knowing this is that we march towards the ultimate problem the scale of imbalance that has been pressed into position is just simply the one that can't withstand anymore um, on, a mul on multiple levels. But we have pressed it into this position, like we're jamming up tight, close between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> and it cannot be maintained by the current trajectory. 
the way of being in the world that has led us to this point has also led us to the only location at which we may able be able to transcend it. And science will be our friend and not real science. We can only do it from here, though. The horror and the colossal pain and the joy and the beauty and the grace as a foregone conclusion. It's the reason why <clears throat> if there's controllers out there, and I think there are, and I know there are, it's obvious. I wouldn't be saying all this, but I didn't know that, but I have to be careful. And I'm just, I don't even know why. But yeah, we can only do it from here. So everything that has transpired has led us to the only place we can save ourselves. And it, and it sucks. I mean, we perhaps could have done it earlier, but now we have no choice. I think that's what I was saying before. That, and it's related to each massive wave of technological innovation. That's when the revolution occurs. You can't refute me on this. Just look at history. I mean, as an example, so you understand it better, right? The Civil War was the transition from agrarian to mechanized society. So, I mean, it, I mean, I could go into more in that, but no. But, so that, you know, the horror and everything that has happened, right? the extreme fucking contrast that we as human beings have had to endure is what makes us hard for us to get off the wheel. It's almost impossible because we can tell what's bad and we want to fight for what's good. But that's all. Not relevant to how we take action in this case. Because that is what I'll get to. So the elite, right, or the controllers, um, they're like, that's what makes them feel righteous about their guiding hand. You know, all the tattered master, masses, they need not have suffered in vain. Thanks to us, if we can complete the great work, you know, that's the definition of being off the mark in the most extreme because <laughs> they have this information. <laughs> 
and they're trying to claim that they're guiding humanity. Um, in a righteous manner, despite everything they do in order to achieve their ends. Yeah, they don't understand it, or they're misdirecting it, or this is the um, revelation of the method, right? We get to see them fucking it all up because they don't understand their own great work, right? But if we're indoctrinated into their bullshit, then I guess we go along with it. That's how it works, right? If we go along, we can't get off the wagon. Um, you can check in, but you can never leave. You, know, you can check out. <laughs> so we know they have missed the mark, right? have strayed most grievously in claiming credit. Is that not the largest separation or the tallest pole? This, the real great work, the alchemical marriage, the not dual division, it'll occur Right? Despite any self-important agenda. The opportunity we now possess can bring it about. I mean, it's, it's an opportunity. I know I've missed a lot. So I know they can be missed. But if we can do it, if if we can do it, it'll be a collective effort. That's, you know, the power of us coming together is radical. And so when they trick us into coming together under a common cause, uh, you know, you know, it's um, impressive. But what if we did it for real, for good? Which is, you know, the uh, evolution of mankind, right? It's, it's requiring like a massive jump. <laughs> but I think there's a bridge still intact for it to cross. To let go um, of the collective of the horror is the most difficult, but we have to choose correctly now. Can we do it? Once begun, the technological remedy must play out to its result. Technology is a departure from nature in that choice-making is man-made, but there is an interesting paradox involved with the nature of artificiality. It comes from nature, because we are from nature, the result of the natural unfolding of the cosmos. And even if one subscribes to being created in part by another race of beings, then we are a product of them and they of the universe. There is little distinction to the level of causality at which nature comes into play because, because it's the original cause of things. The nature of artificiality is that it is natural. 
that takes place in the universe and so therefore is natural meaning that there is a choice making you know a a causal occurring at the level of nature with regards to technology despite the decisions made by man technology must run its course because once begun it starts a decision making process that is inevitable this autopoetic action is composed of the many intricacies of choices made by people but the aggregate mechanism is natural and obligatory once we step on the wheel as a race it begins a time loop in which we only the only progress made is in alignment with technology so it creates a time loop where we're almost grinding You know, the perfect allegory is the show Dark on Netflix, the German show, not, not that other shite. But uh, it's about time travel, and it's the perfect allegory for what I'm talking about, right? It tells the story. So if you bring yourself into it, if you try to take a hand, um, creates a time loop, <laughs> right? We just grind along in one place. Once we step on the wheel, right, as a race, it begins a time loop in which the only progress made is in alignment with technology. So it's a spiral progression, right? But it reaches a limit. The nature of technology is derived from observation of, you know, of the environment and the separateness of things. And so this produces a juxtaposition between wholeness and division, <laughs> which is right, another polar um, relationship. The total accumulation of collective knowledge, which is driven by innovation, at this point suggests that the interdependence of all things unifies them. <coughs> so I'm just saying this in a different way, guys. So same thing in a different way. I apologize if you already understood it. Right? At this point... It suggests that the interdependence of all things, that's our collective knowledge, suggests that the interdependence of all things unifies them. Our accumulated knowledge says everything is connected. However, during the entire time devoted to gathering that information, all of known history, rivalry and division were the circumstances in which that information was produced. It seems as if the output of technology driven by division, right? Um, by the separateness of all things, by opposition, right? the output of technology is driven by opposition, but progresses through unity. Because 
cooperation without it, we can't do it. So there's a union there. And also, again, right? Technology creates an exchange instantly, the moment it is created, which is another polar relationship. Right? Society and um, the good product. <laughs> So despite that, right, technology using divisiveness to be created because you can't, right? If it, if we had to discern shit, we had to make judgments. So divisive in its foundations is technology, a disconnection from nature it creates, but the overall message is in alignment with nature. Which is a message of interdependence. That if we scale up, we become more connected. We scale up our technology, we become more connected and more interdependent as a race. As above, so below. This expansion reaches a scale eventually and inevitably, right? So the message, right, is that we become more interdependent the more advanced our technology gets. <laughs> and yet it is driven by the identification of difference. So the expansion reaches a scale eventually and inevitably that requires being in an interconnected relationship with nature and the universe in order to continue. So how do we do that? We can't do it, right, with our current mode of thinking, right? It's broken. And so we're looking at a way to change the way we think. The ability for abstract thought to consider outcomes and to weigh options, ideas related to the environment and to just ideas, but also related to the individual's navigation of it, you know, of the environment, which includes society. Right? <clears throat> the ability for abstract thought um, has been developed and reinforced with its with connection with our connection with technology. The intellect developed in opposition to nature. Right? It ventured outside, it gathered data furiously in order to become something, but it also it is, you know, intellect developed in opposition to nature, right? And we're saying the objective is to become in alignment with nature. So I'm not saying we're bad, you know. I'm saying that we have to take the right steps now. So our intellect is necessary. Fucking A, it is. 
but intellect is included with and encompassed by intelligence. Intelligence is greater than intellect. It's more than. So our dense analysis of reality through our intellect, our accumulation of knowledge, is now making it impossible for our intellect not to come up with um, proper action. <laughs> because it's everything is screaming about the unity of all things and the interdependence of all things. So our decisions have to be made along those lines. You know? I think that's a helpful angle. Um, like, what do we do? <clears throat> think of how everything is interdependent and how do we, you know, dance in there and not fuck everything up. Intelligence is intellect with deference. <laughs> right? You defer. That's what I'm saying. Is that when you have your entire perception apparatus ready to go, meaning your healthy body, you have the ability to be intelligent. If you don't let your intellect try to drive the fucking bus. Right? Defer. Deference. And you arrive at a fuller picture of reality. Full perception requires the whole. Intelligence requires being whole. This is a time for ideas on how to heal as a collective, to become whole as individuals and so therefore be able to perceive with all of the potential that our bodies possess. Any collective action would involve the use of technology as a tool to possess the alacrity to choose what is to be done collectively requires also the choices that we must make as individuals. Right? And so in order to make the right choice as a collective, <clears throat> we have to make the right choices as individuals. And don't be so hard on yourself. Um, right? Don't measure it. You'll find a way. We all will find a way to each other. Right? But we can't force it. The principle of not forcing. So there's a connection between our ability to navigate this time that we find ourselves in the connection between the steps we take and our technology. So what is the first step? And it's not technological. What is the primary action? Step two involves technology, but we can't do step two unless we have step one. So what is step one? Right? I'm not saying what it is right now, but it is the connection between technology and spiritual evolution. Right? Now I'm saying what it is. Right? We have to evolve. And if we can do that, we can stay in alignment 
we can find the way. But it really just has to, you have to surrender right? in order to do that. Right? It requires um, surrender, but not a surrendering of your intellect. <laughs> Knowing that intelligence is reception. Right. So, and I want to make this link to how production, our technology, right? So, our ability to produce things is related to our ability to, to transcend this critical event. We can't neglect that side of it because it's everything, like I've been saying. Right. Because of the exchange that technology has created, we have to keep it open. Because all we can do now is be specialists. So we need it. We cannot guide our technology to be in alignment with nature if we ourselves are misaligned. We are the operators of technology. In order to operate our technology in balance, we also must be. The first principle is that the intrinsic substance of the universe is mental. This can be arrived at by simple consideration of logical principles. Right? And I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. I mean, but it's really a thought experiment that allows you to arrive at this. And to understand what the observer effect is and why um, the confusion around it is you know, fueled. <laughs> I'm sure you'll see a lot of stories coming out around how they figured out some quantum paradox or another. And you have to sift through them for the good ones. So, first principle, right? the universe is mental. And it comes down to what is and what isn't, and how that is determined, right? the difference between the two. Is and is not create a polar relationship. One cannot exist without the other. You know, that's duality. But it's is and is not. Right? It's the same word twice, negated once. And it's just like thing and nothing, or no thing. Right? It's a polar relationship. And there are... The only way... <laughs> I mean... No didn't come first, right? Thing is first. Well, maybe not, right? Thing has nowhere to be if the thing is first, right? <laughs> I mean, the thing has to be in nothing, right? Because it's a thing. 
Like it has to reside somewhere. Because nothing really is the absence of things. So the thing must have come first. As it is something, but where does it reside? Or does nothing come first, providing a location? And how can that be if there was somewhere for nothing to be? Thing and no thing are polar. Because they are polar, one cannot exist without the other. Right? Because all thing is nothing. Right? There has to be a distinction. <laughs> so thing and nothing, right? Object and space appear simultaneously into existence. But where is that? Where is the beginning? You know, it requires measurement. It requires that third element. You know. We have the ocean and the object in the ocean and the one who sees the distance they are from that object. It requires a measurement, it requires awareness for something to be. If something is to exist, it is an event. And an event requires three things in order to be, a time and a place, and a recording of it. All polarities are simultaneously born. Past, present, and future exist all at once. Everything is a vibration. That really comes before the correspondence principle. Because uh, if everything is a vibration, that is in alignment with that principle. Uh, waves exhibit that. The principle of correspondence. So if everything is waves, of course, correspondence is going to be a thing. And so the principle of correspondence is scalar invariance, right? Um, has, is a property of waves and it is also a property of the universe. Meaning, as above, so below, no matter what scale you look at, you will find the same patterns. The fourth is polarity. Right? The previous principles lay the foundations for the next. This, right, the principle of, the principle of gender comes last because you need all of the other principles to describe the principle of gender. Everything is frequency and waves. Right? Not and waves. Everything is frequency. Waves are frequency. And waves are always polar. Single pole waves don't exist. Like it's an impossibility. Every occurrence is the result of some cause. Everything being composed of waves. So then, 
is an event also a wave, right? It's a disturbance that produces a signature right? in the fabric of reality. An event is a disturbance, right? It produces a signature in the fabric of reality, right? A wave signature with polarity, a dual nature. Every action has its polarity. This is cause and effect. The principle of rhythm demonstrates the interchange between polarities. Life is a dance, not a battle. Our resistance as individuals to want to remain on one pole or the other and fight for that position. But if we do that, right, that's resistance, right? Because we'll be subject to the polar rhythm, like we'll be resisted, we'll be opposed, and we will go from superior to inferior in a rhythmic cycle. Everything is transient. Even what we think reality is changes. To adhere to an identity is to resist. The other option is to remain on the fulcrum, is to reserve judgment. Right? So on the fulcrum, all becomes still as the path presents itself. To be on the fulcrum is to be in alignment with nature. So thinking of being on the fulcrum, like you're not in the trough and you're not on the peak, right? This is the polar relationship. So if you're on the fulcrum, you really don't want to choose the side of the wave. You know, you don't want to choose sides. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. What not to do, right? This is a hard one for most people. It took me forever till like, you know, 2000. And even then, you know, still strayed. I realized that when you oppose something, right, you just um, give it credence. You like make it more real, <laughs> you know? And then, so if you stand up in opposition, um, you're just like legitimizing what you're opposing. When, you know, and that makes sense to me around, about Trump because like, he's ridiculous. Why are you crying so hard? It's obviously a fucking show. <laughs> you know? It's like, it has a perfect effect. So don't choose sides. You won't get fooled in that way. Right? You won't say, oh man, fucking everything the Trump supporters are saying is bullshit. Yeah? And that's not true. A lot of it is bullshit. <laughs> but, um, they're right about some things and it discredits any resistance to some kind of huge fucking global coup that's fucking happening right now. <laughs> that's what I was getting at. I was trying to be delicate about it. 
But fuck this shit, man. Anyway, don't choose sides, right? That's one way to say I'm bad. It's a real easy hack. If you choose sides, you choose the wheel. Right? This is what I was just describing. Choose opposition. You choose to be rotated from superior to inferior, you know, periodically. It's a periodic pattern. So not choose sides is a choice for unity. And that opens up a lot of things to do besides being in opposition to something. Um, another one, being on the fulcrum means you can't take credit because that puts you on the pole. You know? And that's a real fucking easy one to do. Because when you're not fucking worried about that, you're, don't you produce better work? Are you always worried about who stole your beat? You know? When, how many fucking beats have been reused? And like in reggae, they've been doing that since the beginning. You know, the dancehall shit. <laughs> anyway, that was just an example. You know, someone, uh, you know, the, what do they say? Um, mimicry is the sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> Take it as a compliment and keep charging. So don't take credit. That creates a side. Pull subject to rhythmic adjustment. Do not take credit for anything. Right? And this makes it so your motivations will be unselfish. And you'll be, you know, anyway. So what do we do? How can we know what is right if not by our own judgment? Right? Discernment is not judgment. It's an awareness, but not a declaration. Right? We are where we are. We must use what is at hand in a way that is correct. You know, I hate to make the seven principles a thing that I say all the time, but it's how you arrive at this way of thinking that can change, you know, that can flip you, right, in a second, and open your eyes. I mean, it's not like it's the end all, um, but it's uh, nothing is. It's definitely a bridge, though. That's the way I look at it. Um, it's a way for you to get across um, this gulf, you know, of perception. The seven principles offer a way to take action that will not be nullified in opposition. Right? Um, it's pretty simple. 
right? You don't measure it. You don't, you don't quantify it and you don't qualify it. This is how you reserve judgment. This is how one can be truly effective. You have to surrender to any attachment to the outcome, not taking sides and not taking credit leaves other options. You don't measure your action, but you find yourself doing the right thing. You don't get to find yourself doing it. You don't like it. Oh, look at yourself. You're doing the right thing. <laughs> right? That's measuring it. There's like the right thing will present itself somehow. There's a lot of you young people, young, you know, way younger than me. And you're badasses. And you're thinking right. And so you know the right steps to take. And so when I say um, you reserve judgment, it appears, you know, it has the appearance of being right. But don't measure it. Fucking charge at it and make it happen. Because you know in your heart, right? If it feels right in your heart, that's the other thing. Because your heart isn't judgment, right? It's the feeling. And when you're in the, at the fulcrum, when you're not taking credit, right? When you reserve judgment, you're acting from the heart. And you can be truly effective. You have to surrender to any attachment to the outcome. So this is um, ever-present origin, right? This is the magical thing that can happen when you're in alignment and right. So you're not um, taking credit. You're not measuring it. Um, it's uh, a causal intent, right? So the intent takes your um, discernment and your intellect to arrive there, right? But it's an a-causal intent. You arrived at the place where you could take the action, but you didn't ever measure it on some kind of, you know, um, perception scale or ruler. This is ever-present origin, <laughs> and when I understood this, I fucking, I kind of lost my shit, man, because I understood it before, but then I heard um, uh, Gordon White talking about it on Rune uh, Soup podcast, and uh, ever-present origin, oh my god, this is it, right? You, you uh... Your intent gets you there, but you don't, it's like you don't look, right? You don't collapse the wave, the wave function, right? This is the observer effect. You can actually, well, 
it's how you become the hand of God, so to speak. <laughs> right? Isn't it, wouldn't you rather do that than taking credit for your stuff? Because you're, you can become kind of super and not kind of. I mean, this is like super. Right? And those of you who have experienced this know what I'm talking about. Right? Ever present origin. Right? Um, this is the cause and effect where you take, you become the origin cause of something that arrives into the universe. Right? Because every moment is happening at the same time. All polar relationships must come into existence um, simultaneously or not exist. Right? This is how you time travel back to the beginning of the universe and rewrite the code of the universe as if from the origin. You can't do that if you think you're doing it. <laughs> I mean, it comes down to that. That's the how you have this amazing effectiveness and the free will to just um, surrender. <laughs> it's a crazy catch-22, I know. But it doesn't mean you can't understand what I'm saying. Because we are humans, we are intelligent, we get into places and among things. And there, in those places, there are things that can be done that are right. But we can't all heading out there trying to force all the right shit. Right. That's the inferior virtue. A causal intent. Ever-present origin. Like I get goosebumps just thinking about it. And you should too. Um, it's fucking amazing. Because it's humility, right? And the supreme. <laughs> I mean, it's why, uh, you know, athletes point at the sky. Right? And they're not thanking God for giving them, you know, the skills and the, and the moves, you know. They're saying God did it. <laughs> and, right, I, again, I want to stress that to me, this is scientific. Right? And it begins with the first principle. Um, it's hard for a scientific mind to go there because they've been brainwashed their whole fucking career. Um, but Amit Goswami did. And I was reading his book when I should have been studying for my finals in physics, you know. And his book was The Self-Aware Universe. And he's, you know, a PhD physicist. So, you know, there's some people that are aware, right, of this first principle. When you have to understand that to even go anywhere else. And the rest of them, if you work at it with properties of waves, you can really kind of know how you can slip into the focal, okay? which makes it so that you have ultimate perception and allows you to take a causal action 
and do miracles. Okay. Don't measure your, your own actions. Okay. Toss that rule and acquire an infinitely more accurate measurement tool. The universe. So, wow. I like how that went, but I'm going to say these next things anyway. Um, the hack, right? The other hack, right? In order to get this jump started, this ability um, is to be in nature. Nature starts to make you aware of this dance. And so you become aware of the dance of nature. And you become aware of your awareness. So you try to watch yourself watching, observe your observation. So when you're in the still point, um, your observer will find out will uh, you know, make suggestions. <laughs> and that's you. That's your higher self. So if you start observing yourself observe, you can realize that there is a thing like that. There is that. And stop trying to be your body. Right? Your body's just a vehicle. And you keep trying to fucking take the wheel. And that's the small you, you know. If you, the real you, you know, the cosmic you takes the wheel. Then, wow, you know. So the healing of humanity coincides with the healing of our biosphere. Um, because if we can heal humanity, we can heal the way, um, we use technology and we can reduce the pressure that we've placed on the biosphere. And it's not an overnight fix, um, but it's not this carbon tax bullshit. You know, this is actually um, a real, this is how we do it. We have to um, do it from the inside out. So, I'm a scientist, and I understand how greenhouses work. <laughs> so, and carbon um, is not the thing. Poisoning water supply—that's a problem. Um, fucking with the our breathing—that's a problem. Um, there's a lot of problems, but if we, uh, I'm not going to get into it because they really have the lock on us on this other thing now, rather than the fossil fuel thing, because that kind of just falls under the umbrella of this long emergency. So they're getting what they want, no matter no matter what, um, at this point, right? But I'm here to say. Once you get your blinders off, um, 
it's not like uh, Neo fucking waking up in the wasteland, <laughs> right? You're still here, y'all. And guess what? There's something you can do that'll make a difference instead of, you know, what they're telling you. Um, so remember everything you're good at is a gift. Everything you're good at is for other people. Um, we wouldn't have all the gifts that we have individually, you know, if it wasn't that other people over the many thousands of generations like that shit. <laughs> right? Everything we're good at is for other people. Um, everything we're good at is a gift, and we can't take credit for a gift. The message of, of technology is ultimately the, a message of unity, and so we can't survive without it. We can't survive with it unless we re, we relinquish, um, uh, we surrender. The actions we must take will seem untenable, you know, to put it mildly. I mean, on the collective. Right? Once we are able to see, then we can start to come together and fucking, come on now. Right. Take off your glasses. A la verga, que jodido. Um, the actions we must take, you know, once we can see, we'll see, we'll seem crazy um, to our old minds, you know. But that's our old yardstick. So, on aggregate, we will start to move in the right direction, um, despite a lot of us thinking we're alone, um, or you know, just in a small group, or just with our partner. Um, it's the same way uh, synchronicity happens, right? It's the same kind of thing. People will start becoming aware of the same thing all over the place. And it'll just pop up even when you're just thinking about it. And so there will be a movement, right? If we can, this is like a, mm, it really is. I think there a lot of action will start to take place if we can start to see. And this is how we do it, is that um, really take off our goggles, you know, Um, so it's gonna seem crazy, um, but it won't, we won't be able to do it, but that's our old, uh, minds screaming. Yeah. We have to surrender and go for the goal, right? We have to take the crazy shot right? and, or we have to dribble through the defense and know we can do it. You'll know what you have to do, and you'll know um, you'll form teams, um, and the teams will get bigger. But um, so 
So those who can will become aware who they are and be more powerful than they ever conceived of being. And that's just individually. Like if we all come together, whole, oh, right? Um, hold on to your hat. <laughs> I don't know why that just came out. So we don't want to solidify and diminish um, the scope of what's possible, you know, with this old conception. Um, so I think that's part one. Okay, everyone, this is what you've all been waiting for. The myth of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, um, highly pared down, and I referenced a translation for some of the language, but I just retold the story and I skipped a whole bunch. Maybe I'll do the full complete version at some point, but it's just, it's too heavy on the mind. So. <clears throat> Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We find King Arthur and his court in celebration at the Equinox, or New Year's Eve. They are joyous and content in their revelry until the doors of the hall burst open and a massive charger carrying a mammoth of a man enters the space and brings pause to all the inhabitants. The horse is all green, as is its rider. The sound of its plate-sized hooves echoes as the giant knight gets it under control. The knight is green. His whole personage is green. He is the vision of a great warrior, but larger, with a holly branch in one hand holding the reins, and a green axe encrusted and enrooned in the other. The horse turning in the hall before the dais, the green knight keeps his eyes fixed on Arthur, turning his head like a dancer. As the horse calms, the spectacle of him is heightened. The moment is full, but no one speaks. All wonder what manner of man is this, never before seen. Is he, more than one thought, a phantom of the fairy? Must be, for he is barefoot and wears golden spurs. Then his soft but deep voice addresses the assembly he sees before him. This is a grand party. Who presides over this gathering? Silence then, as all know the answer and yet afraid to speak. Arthur without fear proclaimed, Welcome, sir. I am Arthur, the head of this house. Sit and join us, perhaps later, we may hear why you have come. Nay, I would not make you wait, boomed the Green Knight. I have heard of your greatness. Sir Knight, Arthur said, if you crave battle, then you will not be disappointed. Ha! You are as mere children compared to me. It would not be a match worthy of note. I come in peace, as this branch signifies. However, I crave a gift from thee. It is that time of year, after all. You, being so bold of blood and hot intellect, as I hear say, 
I ask that we play a game. What game would that be? I propose that you exchange blows with me, one blow for another. This axe may be yours if you so accept my bargain. This weapon is rich, a blade of no comparison. It may be yours. We merely must trade blows. You can go first, if you agree that in a year and a day, you will travel to find me, and I will return the blow. This is what I ask of you. Now silence again, for long moments. And then, is this not the great court I have heard so much about? Is this Arthur's house now overthrown so easily? And the great bellowing of laughter of the Green Knight filled the hall. Arthur's pride was hurt at this, and in his shame he spoke. No one in their right mind would ask such a thing, which is why I paused. But if this be the boon you want, I will gladly give it to you. At that Arthur lightly and deftly, faster than would seem possible, closed the gap between him and himself and the giant. The green man then straightened and became his full silhouette, which was more than imposing while he regarded the other before him. As Arthur laid fingers on the hilt of the green axe, he met eyes with the green knight, and in that moment was transfixed by what he saw there. Suddenly, Sir Gwain leapt up and demanded that the blow be his to take. My lord, I am the weakest and of the slowest wit of your knights. Let me take this foul test, and so if it be a trap and I fail, no one may say Camelot did not rise to the challenge, though I say it is folly. All agreed. It should be Gwain and not the king to take the swing. Okay, Gwain but it seems to me that you must strike true, for I perish the idea of you receiving in kind. Gwain stepped to the knight, putting axe in hand. I am Sir Gwain. What is your name so that I may find you and complete this bargain? Make good your side of the bargain, and perhaps you may never hear, hear it and not leave these grounds in search of me. That being said, make sure that you seek me out yourself when the time comes. Now show me what you've got. Gladly, said Sir Gwain. And the green knight bent low and exposed his bare skin to Gwain. Gwain, with his footing set, sends the axe in its killing arc, severing the head of the green knight and biting the blade into the paving stones of the hall. The head rolls to the ground. Blood spurts from the neck of the green knight, and yet he is not felled. His body roughly reaches down for his head and carries it to his charger as if like a helmet. He catches bridle as if normally, then steps into stirrup and mounts casually. He then grabs hold of the hair of his own severed head and holds it aloft as if no mi mishap had ailed him. Pointing his head towards everyone, its eyes open, its mouth then utters, I am called the Knight of the Green Chapel. Ask, and you will find it. See you in a year and a day, Sir Gwain, for your payment. With that, the charger whirled around, and with bunched flanks erupted from the hall, leaving sparks on the stones. Everyone, although in shock of what they had witnessed, could not help but be thinking how fucked Sir Gwain was. 
what ensues next is the passage of the seasons, each passing season, Sir Gawain considering his predicament more. Until finally, in the fall, on the day of all saints, the knight revels with his king and reveals his intention to leave. He prepares himself for the journey. For surely it must be a distance away. But why should I falter? My destiny, foul or fair, is mine to bear. Gawain gets fully kitted up in his best gear, including a shield upon which the symbol of the pentangle is wrought, each pinnacle connected to the next in the endless knot, symbolizing the five virtues. He sets out across Britain with no way of knowing he is headed in the right direction. He encounters many foes and obstacles along the way, and he vanquishes them, but he is troubled each night in his sleep. Later, during the winter, Sir Gawain finds himself starving and near freezing to death. He asks then, he asks, head up and hands raised into the snowy fog that he may have a place to attend Christmas Mass. He scrambles to a beautiful castle that appears out of the fog a short distance away, and he is saved. It was Gawain's nearness to death that prompted his appeal. There he meets the head of the house, his wife, and an old woman, along with all the staff and court hangers-on. In this environment, all of the qualities represented by the pentangle will be tested. These could also be named the qualities of man. In testing Gawain in these various ways, the mysterious head of the house, the head of the castle, shines a light on Gawain's five points of virtue. In proposing a game of sorts, the host puts Gawain into positions that will test it. He proposes that they trade whatever each of them wins in their adventures each day. While the host goes into the forest, Gawain will remain at the castle. Then they will exchange what they each got during the day. These are the rules that Gawain agreed to. By the end of three days at the strange castle, Gawain has received venison on the first day, boar on the second, and a fox pelt on the third. In return, he traded the kisses he had gotten from the lady of the castle, keeping to his bargain. On the third day, in reserve, Gawain had kept the green sash that the lady had gave him. She had told him that it would keep him from harm. Gawain took this to mean, as we all would, as long as he wore the green sash, he would be unkillable. This was a gift he had to keep for himself, knowing what he was to face. He would take this chance at being saved, even if it meant breaking his covenant with the lord of the castle. All of his knightly virtues were tested, and he failed them all. He could not trust his eyes, as he was living in a magical castle. He could not trust his fingers, as he had been enjoying himself much. He compromised his courtesy and his chastity by both refusing the queen and not telling her to leave. His friendship and generosity were made suspect when he kept the sash for himself. On the big day, on the big day, Gawain left the castle knowing he had not much time left to locate the green chapel. 
he had kicked himself for staying too long, as he followed a castle guide into the snowy hills. At a fork in the path, the guide turns to him and offers him an out. No one escapes the Green Knight alive. I won't tell anyone if you leave without facing me. Gawain refuses, claiming no cowardice. Suit yourself. The guide turns his horse, waving. It's that way. Good luck, he calls over his shoulder. Gawain founders about in the woods for a while, until noticing a large grassy mound with a door in it. He suspects this must be the green chapel and approaches uncertain, but with resolve. There he hears the sound of a blade being sharpened on a grindstone. It's time to pay the piper. Oh, hello. I was thinking you lost your nerve. Ready to get what's coming to you? Gwen feigns courage as he steps up and presents his neck to the green knight. As the knight brings his axe to bear, Gwen flinches. This stalls the green knight's blow while he makes fun of Gwen and his grand reputation. I will not flinch again. The green knight swings again and watches to see if Gwen will flinch. And when he does not, he stops and laughs. Ha ha, good one. I knew you could do it. Gwen gets angry then. Stop playing with me. The green knight considers him for a moment then winds up again and brings the axe down hard and fast, but only nicks the prostrate Gwen. at which point Gwen jumps up, thinking he has completed his end of the bargain, and challenges the big man to a duel. Don't worry, boy. I spared you. Do you not recall our covenant? I do. My part is done. You have no claim over me. Not that one. The one from the other day. Remember when we were exchanging winnings? Gwen stood dumbfounded at that revelation, that the lord that was playing host to him was the Green Knight all along. The first two swings were for the first two days. Well played, that. That last strike, though, was for when you failed on that last day to give me the sash you now wear. Gwen was horrified. He tears the sash off and stomps on it. How can I make this up to you, he says. Don't worry about it. That wasn't the point of the whole thing, anyway. I'm having a party at the castle. You want to come by? Are you kidding me? You just tried to cut off my head. Ah, well, it stings a bit still, I guess. I'll leave you to it, then, says the Green Knight. Give my best to your wife, Gwen calls after a moment of watching him walk away. The Green Knight half raises his arm in response, but Gwen could hear him chuckling. Gwen heads back to Camelot, where he tells the tale of his failure to uphold the five points. The five points of virtue. Don't feel bad, brother. Any of us would have chosen life in those circumstances. You did rather well, having learned a valuable lesson for us all. Suppose you are right. Melee, anyone? So the obvious, right, this is, that was the end of the story. <laughs> um, the thing that about this text that this poem comes from is that it was written at a certain time and it was likely, likely transcribed by monks, you know, probably um, 
there was no other way it was done exactly that's exactly how it happened and uh with these stories that are important in the culture and have been there for a long time um, they often get retold in the next age to match the new stuff and sometimes it's a poorly done job <laughs> and i think in this case the monks who transcribed it from older texts surely added in the christian aspect while being you know keeping the lesson largely intact because it's a it would be a compelling story you know in those times if you can kind of imagine it but when they do that uh, it muddies the water of the fable because the message is that message of this one particularly and i'll just give it away is that um man's law or man's sensibility does not hold sway over nature or natural law. Um, that would be, you know, God's law in effect. And when Gawain curses the green chapel, so I didn't put that in, but in the poem, he curses the green chapel when he finds it and names it of the devil. You know? um, and so it's obvious that that response to that is, a Christian insertion it has to be because um, those cairns, those green mounds dot the landscape all over Britain and Scotland and Ireland. And they're, you know, they're part of a previous culture, you know, Celtic or maybe uh, Gaelic, Celtic Gaelic. Um, it even goes pretty far back, way farther than, you know, the post-Roman period. So, when they do that, um, you think of the green mound, and um, it's like, oh, if that's where he's hanging out, then he's definitely, you know, of the fairy folk, right? Or um, is some kind of there's some kind of representative of the fairy folk, and we always know that that the fairies are with nature, right? Um, so. He's definitely connected to nature and is where he hangs out and his color and the fact that um, they even mention him being of the fairy, uh, a phantom of the fairy in the first couple of lines. So he's from nature. Green Knight represents nature, signified by his green color and the mention of the fairy. The fairy are always of nature. In the first scene, though, we see the opposition of man with nature, um, that and that shows itself in the blow for blow game. <coughs> um, so we see man remove the head of a representative of nature, and the blow, though decisive, has no effect on the vitality of the being. This tells most of the story of um, the message of this poem or this fable, this myth, in the first couple of lines. Nature will endure any blow man can deliver. It's like, give, us your, give it your best shot. You know, nature will carry on. Um, the noting of the seasons, right, in the next part um, demonstrates the connection with nature, the, um, the way that it 
is important, and that may sound obvious, but it's an important theme here. Um, the connection with nature. Um, and then so the journey that Gawain endures, right? Um, Gawain, in this case, so if the Green Knight is a representative of nature, then Gawain is just, you know, man or humans. It's hard to say it, you know, the beings that live on this earth. Um, our particular style of being, um, that's what Gawain represents, you know, in general, symbolic of that. Um, so it's important to recognize these things as um, symbolic and not like, um, like a literal translation, although that's how you reach um, a human mind, is you make it relatable. This story kind of tells the story of what's in the seven principles, right? And also the journey of man, like it almost like a um, prophecy of the journey of man um, to make it. Um, so Gwen sets out and what he endures suggests that some things will appear that cannot be left undone, you know. And so even though Gwen doesn't know where he's going, he has to, um, things he's doing <laughs> while he moves through the country. And they ain't easy. Um, so when he sets out, he doesn't know where he's going, and he goes nonetheless, and that's um, the idea, right? One of the ideas that we're referencing is, is that you don't have a map because the territory is the map. You, any map you could make would just be an approximation. So be open to the territory. Um, when, uh, and where it leads you. So when he is at his lowest, you know, so he goes through this, these ordeals and gets to the point where he can't continue. And so, and then has arrived. So therefore he has arrived and still does not know, you know, and that kind of, that's us right now as, as um, a race, you know, civilization, humanity, right? We have arrived we, and we can't go any further. And we, I still don't know we've gotten, there. you know, any further unless we, um, you know, make this transition in the in the castle right so in the castle a contract is struck uh, unbeknownst to Gwen, this contract again suggests um, that our relationship with nature um, is an exchange with every action having an equal and opposite reaction so it's an exchange that um, occurs uh, between man and nature that is obligatory the exchange is there because cannot not be there, um, cannot be avoided. The rules are the same in this game, right, as before. What you give is what you get. Right? So this demonstrates the um, cause and effect, and um, the when you create a cause, then there's the um, you know the polar aspect of it, you know, the downside or whatever. If it's an upside, downside, downside up. But what you give is what you get. 
this is why the new game in this new castle replaces the old game in a it's a more complex game now right so it's more nuanced than an, than an exchange of blows with um, nature like so that's kind of what we've been doing as a culture is you know exchanging blows with nature um, you know it's right, it gets tiresome it's time now this is what I keep saying um, our involvement with nature is not a wholly a blow for blow exchange it has more subtlety so that's what we get here with now we have the keep or the castle and so it's not just the lord who represents nature because he's in a different guise he looks like a you know just like a hefty lord you know um but it's his whole uh, keep and castle court that is the representative of nature um, which is kind of a strange inversion because it's like um, also representative of the comfort that man gives himself by being a creator of things you know? so it's a strange inversion which is you know another thing that happens um, when you're looking at this kind of stuff in this way right is that these polar relationships right um, they trade places in a rhythmic way and so in a story like this then just putting them in a superposition the relationship because they are kind of one you know so one is cannot be without the other and so then you create you blend them into one and in this case we have you know the lavish castle um, and all the staff and everything but um, it is symbolic of our interchange with nature and uh, so and what it, where it gets really nuanced is, and so it brings in almost all the principles, I think all of them, all the principles, and also like this prophetic thing, you know, of the way um, um, if we're not aware of um, the unity of duality, right, how we can become put in the <laughs> uh, spin cycle. So that's what we want to avoid because we can no longer do the spin cycle because it's just actually a spiral spin. So we get we approach a um, point, you know, a limit at which um, the certain variables have to be changed or we can't pass through the crux of um, the equation, so to speak. So. The rules are always the same. What you give is what you get. Um, and this is why the new game replaces the old game with a more um, complex setup, a more complete setup of what we're actually exchanging with nature. And so the court is nature, not just the big man. It demonstrates the principle of gender, right? Brings in the seventh principle because we have the female and the male aspects of nature represented in the full assembly of uh, the castle and its court. So how we interact on that level is the nuance I, I'm speaking of. If the castle symbolizes nature, um, the game in the castle reminds us of our exchange with it. The Lord hunts in the woods, 
providing on the one hand sustenance and material, right? So our relationship with nature is material. That's the material side, right? That's the male side. That's the analytical side, right? And but what would Gawain offer in exchange for his day in the castle? A kiss he stole from the lady. Right? Nature is both male and female, and our exchange with it uh, involves both aspects. Um, the male side offers bounty, while the female offers holy union. Right? Are you with me? Are you with me? Right? Because this is um, the being born is a, is a miracle. And it starts with that holy union, you know, between a man and a woman. So this is part of our exchange with nature. We can't exist without this aspect of it, which is why it's in this myth. And um, it's obvious that the, that the monks of the time that were transcribing this shit and then adding their own shit text to it um, didn't understand this right, because of their disconnection that they had experienced being in a religious sect for that had been developing for hundreds of years, um, right? So this whole thing here um, is way more subtle than just the idea of man and woman and um, the complexity that arises around that relationship, especially with humans. Um, so, um, the male side bounty, female for holy union, it's about an exchange of winnings. It isn't about an exchange of winnings in this case, right? Because this is another, another obligatory exchange, right? The female side, right? Um, and any kind of, uh, um, that introduction of the union of the male and the female which is part of nature will present contradictions in any code uh, based on human sensibilities, any code of man, any rules of man. And so that's, it's simply there to illustrate that any, if we um, create these sets of virtues, there will be times when um, you'll have to break one or the other, or multiple of the virtues, because there will be no way to um, satisfy them all. And so the human um, code will always break down in situations um, that are kind of informed by um, this natural background, which is, you know, it's the seventh principle, um, the principle of gender, right? So it's everywhere. It's how life continues, you know, which is a little kind of model of how the universe um, started. So are you getting, I'm having to dance around this because of all of the crazy shit that um, is happening on the planet and it's impossible to talk about. And it even, it starts back with those fucking monks, you know, but you, I think you get what I'm saying. Right, is that, that you will um, you will end up uh, 
having to make decisions that will break one or more of your five virtues <laughs> or anything, any kind of code, moral code that man puts upon um, nature, will it will end up contradicting itself and breaking itself. So, I hope I made that clear. The dilemma presented by the queen in the allegory is an allegory for a choice that has no right answer within the structure of human laws. Right? You'll be breaking one law if you do one thing. It's like both answers are wrong. You know, both choices are wrong, um, and that um, is something that um, can be navigated. That's what this is saying. But often we're going to have to be like. There's no right answer, so I need to be guided by some other source of information. And, uh, or it's really just a symbol of that dilemma that will occur, right? So I think you get what I'm saying, is that there will always be a moral dilemma presented in any kind of written code by man. So the crux of the fable is that the last part, right? So that basically shows, I mean, that whole exchange things, like that's really important. And I kind of skipped over the, all of the events that, you know, but it's, we're hitting on it, right? So I just want to make that clear again before I move on to the last part of the story. Um, that it's this is all symbolic, right? That if of that um, in our attempt to be virtuous, right? Like King Arthur's court is supposed to be the perfect court, right? Has all the right things, you know. But in the myth, we see that it, it disintegrates. So. Yeah, so it's symbolic, right? So the symbolic, um, in a, in a, you know, in an all-encompassing sense of everything that happens, you know, in that section of the poem, of the myth, um, of how we can think we know what's right, but really we're kind of um, claiming a, an authority that cannot be claimed by us. Right? The crux of the fable is in the last part where Gwen meets his fate head on. In the first part, we see that nature can withstand any blow given by man and would respond. But we see that nature will provide protection. Right? <laughs> it will offer us you know, protection. The lesson is um, that we are in an exchange with nature, and it will not harm us, right? Um, if we would just stop fighting it, <laughs> right? And then we have these words in English um, that kind of trap us in these polar relationships, right? But um, 
stop fighting it, right? Surrender. Right? So the opposite of that, right? The polar relationship of fighting is surrender. But that doesn't mean, right, that will automatically trigger your left brain to be like, what, what? I'm not surrendering to shit. No. I'm going to hammer through this. But you got to be, you know, there's a subtle dance sometimes. We see Gwen in his full acceptance of his fate, right? Which is the whole point of the story, right? Is the surrender. And at that moment, he is spared, right? It's, you're waiting for this big revelation after what he went through in the castle, but this is the whole thing, you know? Um, that shit is to remind us to be aware that um, the principle of Wu Wei, basically, which is, you know, inferior virtue is um, overly concerned with virtuosity, which is, you know, our perception of virtue. And so, therefore, is not virtuous. Right? Superior virtue has no intention of being virtuous, and so, therefore, is virtuous. Right. It goes with the ebb and the flow of nature. Right? Um, and it's a dance, not a battle. The nuance can bog you down, but um, yeah, that's that last part is the whole thing. Right? Surrender. Right? Stop fighting it. Um, stop trying to um, take control, and you will have more control. It's that kind of weird thing like that, which kind of you know, in the West, everyone can't handle that. And I've known this about this thing. It's like, oh, it's like you got to hold two things at once at the same time. You know, you got to look without looking, you know. And yeah, that Kung Fu shit, uh, which is related to the, the Tao, you know. But um, you really want, you can really understand it, I think, then when you see that you can stand in that still point of the wave. Right? It's really that simple. You just visualize yourself there, and when you do that, you don't pass judgment. You reserve judgment. You um, discern, but don't um, declare. So we are in an exchange with nature, not a battle. And our resistance to that idea um, causes reprisal in like these big ways periodically for all of us. And this could be the one that is like too big to handle um, unless we can change course. Right? And if we um, so the the message right of the Green Knight is if we give what we t back what we take then we have no cause to fear the fable includes the seven principles and is like um, a journey of man so to speak you know and Wayne makes it out right um, because he uh, knows that In a true sense, in a truest sense, in a spiritual sense, no one leaves the Green Knight alive, right? 
he had to let who he was go. And once he did that, he was fair. So the bridge, right, the seven principles can get you across the bridge if you understand them just as, just remind yourself to get back on the fulcrum, right? Um, and you can almost surf it because you are where you are because of your, your mind, you know? And so um, there is a place to go from there, right? From where you are and from where I am, from where we all are, right? But do it from the point of stillness and you can surf this fucker. <laughs> just dancing in between events, right? Looking without looking and doing magic. Everything has a cause, right? By placing our, our, our awareness at the still point, we avoid the poles, right? By remaining on the fulcrum, we avoid the rhythm of polarities, right? getting caught on the wheel. We avoid being a cause. When we are not a cause, we don't create an effect. And so we have become nothing. And in becoming nothing, we can see everything, right? And then you know where to step. This is the message. Do not measure. Measuring In measuring, you become a cause. Instead, relinquish your ruler and allow the universe to measure for you. <laughs> and, you know, the dual meaning of ruler in this case is not lost on me. Because that's why we have rulers, is because we have measured everything. Um, we've gotten to a point where our devices um, can measure it as it is, and then we realize, oh, fuck. We have the wrong tool. <laughs> We've been fucking up this whole time. But here we are. So make the best of it. And if you are out there, you know, and you are of means, right? You're wealthy, right? Then um, think about how you can drive that um, capital in a way that is so badass. Instead of, oh, everyone's just like, look at you, you you're making your money work for you, you know. <laughs> right? That's not the good kind of way of spending money. Right? You can be fine forever and still um, direct all those resources like um, water through channels that subdivide into subdivide and subdivide and then run little turbines, right? That's just the visual image. Um, there's ways, right, to be effective towards um, a positive outcome for all of us. And I wouldn't say all of this stuff if I didn't think it was important to say it. Um, and maybe that's measuring it, it because um, this is the final measurement, y'all. This is what I think. Um, we could just, uh, I mean, if they managed to put us in this uh, digital cage, 
we could limp along like all half human or not even, you know, one, one percent human. Cause right now we're operating at like 15% max, you know, we can be so much more. And that's what we have to remember also, um, is that, um, the power is within you, <laughs> you know, they want to, all these superhero stories are like these special, uh, ones, you know, um, and there's this quote by a Hindu guy that talks about um, the weakness of man is everyone is common to everyone, right? And what makes us awesome is what makes us unique, and that's fucking true, right? But what makes us unique is all of our thousands of generations of um, doing something in society, you know? All of our gifts that we have are for other people. So... Um, there's this also thing, the strength of humanity is in common with everyone. And that's what I think is little told. You know, everyone's, yeah, we're all just human, you know. But we're all, yeah, fucking just human. We're a fucking badass. <laughs> um, and so there's that whole other side of it. The greatness is common in everyone, right? Um, <clears throat> like it's built into us. That's what we forget. We act like we have to earn this greatness, but it's built in. And when you start thinking like that, then you can, these choices are less competitive you know, and comparison based because in our society, greatness is, is a measurement, which is what I keep talking about based on this um, false idea of what's uh, valuable. Because a lot of what's driving our economy these days is perception of value and not real value. Um, and so then you can see how far we've gone astray with that kind of action. You know, we can't let the corporations uh, be in control of the means of production just for that reason, just for what they've done in that way. Right? It's not our fault. Try to make it about us and recycling. You know, they're the ones who built this business model that they jam down our throats and then market the fuck out of us. Right, creating perception of value, which is based on waste, you know, because you've got to have something new every season. And they figured out that model a long time ago, and it's gotten way out of hand, you know, <laughs> because look at the waste that it's caused. I mean, it's absurd. So we take back the robots right now. All the robots are just ready to be able to do most of it, right? You just kind of like do a 3D model. You can even like have an AI help you design it. Right? This is what we should have. So, but the main thing that needs to stay in place is our exchange. Um, the exchange that we have with each other that was established when first we flaked stone tools because that began the technological revolution, right? That can't stop. That is autopoetic until this point right now. So it's the exchange. We that's why we need technology to make transition. But we can't let fucking um, the controllers, you know, or the ones who we put on a pedestal, um, like Elon Musk, uh, hook us up hardwire. You know, that's not what it's intended to be. Um, not in that sense, anyway, where everything, everyone is kind of monitored by a, an overarching mesh. You know, where it's just like one brain. <clears throat> Um, and everyone else is just kind of connected 
and part of its processing power in a way. Um, that's not it. Um, but we need the technology to make it through and we have to have a, a new way of seeing is the lightest way of saying it, but it's a spiritual evolution. And it's not even that it happens and you don't feel different, <laughs> you know? It's subtle because it's been happening your whole life. Um, the nudges that you get are subtle, right? You got to be still to fucking be aware of them, you know? And when you listen, then you have those peak experiences. You all know what I'm talking about. So we make that the norm just by being aware of being aware, you know, and tapping yourself on the shoulder when you start to fall into the old way of thinking. And it's not just your old way, it's the old way that's been pressed on all of us. Because um, this whole um, solipsism thing where everyone has their own truth is bullshit. There is an, there is an objective truth, but um, you can lie to yourself and um, that can be your world. <laughs> you know? But, um, So I was trying to get to the point of like those of you uh, who are rich out there um, and you're wondering how to be the right thing in this transitional environment. Right? You got to help out like now. Um, you got to put your money where your mouth is and uh, not worry about the return on your dollar because um, some things are just you have to just go for it. If they're right to do and so we need the exchange that is free and fair and not um, tamperable right that if people in free association with each other are uh, trading right that it, it can be done and it needs to be open and available and um, easily accessible right? this is really important part of it because then it'll allow the other decisions to happen within that exchange network and then it'll grow that possibility and it'll, and it'll create a different kind of um, chain reaction you know um, in that kind of environment where it's not um, where the strings aren't being pulled for the ones who are um, doing the insider baseball um, and that brings up the question that everyone will always ask, how in this thing that you're proposing, which is in the exchange, it's the exchange and we need technology to run it <laughs> because there's a lot of us and we need to break it into communities. Um, but uh, the exchange, right, this is the thing. How do we keep um, the ones who would team up create alliances and game the system from doing it, right? Um, so first of all, that's what is going to kill us, right? That kind of behavior right there, right? That's what's an incompatible with runaway um, um, technological advancement, with exponential technological growth. That behavior is incompatible. That's what blows us up. That's what melts us, you know. And that's that kind of behavior will be perpetuated if they put us in that digital cage. 
So that's the thing that needs not be done, right, in order for us to do this. And how you not do that is um, understand um, how to stay on the still point and not get on the poles and create um, a um, action-reaction um, rhythm response um, at infinitum. Because that's what it does. It kind of, you know, it's like one thing begets another, and it, this is what is incompatible with exponential technology. Right? It reaches a point where that, those two things can exist together, um, because um, the competition or the rivalry uh, destroys us. So that's the big question, and so that's how we avoid it. And like I said, it's. Um, these little nudges are subtle, and this is a subtle nudge for society, right? But if we can each become aware, right, then we won't act like that. <laughs> and those of you who have made a really good life in this system, and that is a measured life, right? Um, and you have a lot of resources. Um, I'm not against you. Um, I'm for everyone. I'm, that's the whole message of this. Um, a lot of us have been fooled, and our behavior is bad because of that. Because um, we've been fooled. You know? That doesn't deserve. We don't get a chance. That doesn't mean we don't deserve a chance. And even rich people deserve a chance. <laughs> no, I'm fucking with you, but I'm serious. I'm sincere. Um, we need your help in building these networks so that they function and also to drive. Um, we also need your credibility because that's still a thing, right? So, but don't act like you're now sponsored, right? By saving the world. You know? <laughs> so yeah, in these communities where you're moving to because you're afraid of the city shit, um, then think about how to set up these um, unbreakable networks where exchange occurs. And then everyone in that network, in that community, can exchange and not be, um, you know, and not be impinged in that way. And then it can grow from there. Um, but that's the most important thing because if that exchange breaks down, then we get we get fucked in every a whole number of ways. <laughs> Even y'all, rich people, right? You can like hide out for a while, but if we go down that road, it's going to be really tricky for everyone. And that's the road where it's every man for himself. And if you have a lot of cash right now and you're building fences and digging bunkers, um, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, although, you know, plan B, you, st you have tons of money, so you can do that too. But do this other thing, right? Where we've got to get these communities to function as one. Um, so that's what we need to push, lean into is maintaining that free exchange um, that cannot be hacked, cannot be broken. And so that's what, I mean, there's probably fucking backdoors being written into this shit, but there's a way to do it. Some of you guys out there know how to do it. And some of you have the cash to back it. And some of us have the ability to see how it can all fit together. Right. And other people have other skills can all come together, but if we have the exchange, we know where to go, where we can be, and we can go there when we need to work, too. 
right? It's everything is in the exchange. So that's what I want to say. Um, this is, I'm just going to bumper this one on right on to the other recording I did last night. So it's going to be like a two hour episode. And, um, you know, I talk about general semantics, right? But if you're talking about what is, uh, we don't have the words to talk about, then we have to, I have to use the words we have, <laughs> you know? And I think in this case, right? And you'll, you'll all be like, hey, he's measuring. No, it's important because we've reached the, you know, the end of the rope. And uh, it's possible, like I said, that we could limp along like, you know, season 34 um, with barely any viewers. <laughs> or we could, you know, break the whole box and be um, what we're intended to be. You know, there's so much more than this. And <laughs> so, yeah, um, till next time, everyone, and stay tuned because there will be more. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to try to allow myself to be guided. <laughs> I'm a heavy resistor myself. I'm in it with all y'all. We're all in this together. And that phrase has been, you know, hijacked. But it's true. And the momentum of this vessel is vast. But sailors know tricks on how to, to steer um, ships faster than would be possible. And it just takes us um, more often than not the communal effort where everyone has to work together and rush to one side of the ship and then the other. <laughs> and then, it, you know, we could become so awesome. We have it all in us, in us all. Okay. I'll talk to you all later. <laughs>